much longer passage, I guess, than I initially thought. When I first read through, I just kind of scrolled like, oh yeah, this is easy. Everybody knows this story. But well, um, yeah, there's a lot to it. I mean, I first like I I Googled the wrong thing the other day and it was <laughs> it was uh uh two Samuel 17. And that two Samuel 17 is like uh it just like it, it's basically like David's secretary wrote it. It's like this guy went over here and then he had to <laughs> talk to this lady and this lady said to it's like one of those, you know, if you read deeper into it, there'd probably be a lot here. But this is, you know, one Samuel 17. That's David and Goliath. That's the there's a lot. He, people, there's a lot that I love about this one. Uh, I, I love all the David on the come up stories. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I think that there's. um there's like a section of 16 that I wanted to bring up and I wound up recording just a little section of it that maybe Ash can cut in here or something. But there's a section where Jesse is uh, David's father. He's like one, David's one of, I think, four sons. Yeah. And and Samuel, who's the prophet that the book is named after, comes to Jesse and is like, I need to find the anointed one and he's among your sons. And so uh, Jesse brings all of his sons up in front of Samuel and Samuel's like, not that one, not that one, not that one. Don't you have another one? Like a Cinderella type thing. And uh, and so he's like, oh, well, the, the younger one, but he's just a shepherd. He's out in the field. And Samuel's like, no, go get him. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so uh, he brings him out and immediately Samuel's like, this is the dude, the little short little guy. He's like, and the description is very funny because it's like, he's so beautiful and he had nice eyes and he was red cheeked and like, (laughs) it was kind of like, oh, okay. Um, But yeah, they anointed him with oil. And then it was all of a sudden like, yeah, well, David's going to be the one. Like it was immediately obvious there. So the fact that Saul's like reaction to David in 17 was so surprising to me because it was like, didn't you already know? Yeah, well, that... That's what I love. I like they're repeatedly all the David stories are I love them because they're repeatedly like telling you what the deal is with David, right? <laughs> David's like not a particularly like unless you really take the time to look at him, he's not like that striking looking of a guy. He's not like tall, even though all like artistic depictions of him are like he's a fucking fitness model. He looks like that guy, <laughs> the fitness model who got killed by the train, Greg Plitt in all the sculptures of him. Uh, He's like, but in reality, he's like, you know, not that big. He's, yeah, has beautiful eyes if you actually look at him. And the description (laughs) of him, like pre him doing anything really, is that he's like a well-balanced person. Like he can play the liar very good. He's like, he, he has good humors, as people would say. He's brave, which is important. 
But like I always the, the point of David, as I understood it in all his stories, is never that David's like an amazing guy. He's not like a particularly good person. He's not like particularly like great to his friends. He's not like really even really nice to anyone that much. <laughs> He's like he is very brave. Like that is the notable thing about the David and Goliath story uh, is that. It's like, yeah, everyone is afraid to fight Goliath, but David is like, well, like I have like killed bears and shit when they take my sheep. I, this is the same idea. <laughs> They're like, okay, fine, go crazy. And, but the point of David is never like, well, like with Solomon, the point of Solomon and the point of what they're getting at with a lot of that is that Solomon's an incredible guy. Like he's, there's no one like him. And David does have a few incredible aspects, but the point of David is like, no, the thing that's like incredible about him is what's incredible about God because it, he takes this guy who like, if you don't look at him long enough, he's like pretty average and he's like just a fucking shepherd who's like good at an instrument. And because of his unbreaking covenant, he's able to do all this shit. But like he himself isn't like, you're not going to meet him and get blown away. No, yeah, like the the point of, and this is where um, where I think the story, the way that the story gets told, and like the Sunday school that I like went to when I was growing up, and like all the all the stories that people heard about David and Goliath was like, uh, you know, the little guy overcomes the big guy, and like, isn't that an isn't that an inspiring story? But it's like that's not really at all what this is, the point is supposed to be here. It's supposed to be that like God gave the gave the most power to the most unassuming little guy who was able to, you know, exact this uh, punishment against this massive warrior. And how massive he was is also up for debate because the the texts, I guess, are are kind of conflicting. One, the Dead Sea Scrolls say he was only about six feet tall. (laughs) (laughs) And the the early Hebrew says he's like nine feet tall. and, And I guess that's a pretty big difference. But but like, yeah, I mean, David, we know he is he's a little dude. He's kind of soft. He's, um, he, you know, he's a musician. I I think it's even mentioned somewhere that he's like a good dancer. Yeah. And, uh, and so he is the one with his slingshot, which is also like an unconventional weapon, I guess, uh, with his slingshot thing, he, you know, he takes down this massive giant, but it's because of the power that God gave him, not because he was somehow, uh, skilled in, in, in any exceptional way. I think it's, um, that's amazing because it's like, you know, sometimes a text becomes more meaningful uh, by the way that people accidentally interpret it, by the way they interpret it wrong. And I think what's amazing is, and this isn't just like Christians who do this, Jews, you know, we do it too, where we suddenly, just because David is technically doing all these things, we turn David into the great man of history. Hmm. Isn't David so amazing he was able to do that? And it's like, no, that's really not the point. Like, why Why do they, why else would they give you all those stories where David is, like, being awful, like, being <laughs> fucking terrible? It's like, no, the point of him is that he's, like, he's as, like, vain and, like, atavistic in some ways and awful and, like, normal as any normal person you can get. But he shows, like, what can happen if you do not break your covenant with God. Like, I don't... The point of the story of Uriah is that, like, it's not that, like, David's, like, particularly bad. It's, like, 
you could see someone doing. You could see someone in who is like put into this position, like being being like, oh, I'm able to just fucking get rid of this guy and act on my worst impulses and do this. And mm -hmm. I love like that's always the David story I love the most. The how he the one where he's a murderer. Yeah, Uriah and Bathsheba. <laughs> Because, like, he's the worst guy. Like, he in that story, he's, like, the worst guy in the fucking story. Mm -hmm. Like, he's, after, like, he gets Uriah killed and knocks up Bathsheba, and God is like, what the fuck? Like, why did you do that? Like, what's wrong with you? I'm going to kill this kid. And David's like, no, 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 no. And, like, during the entire pregnancy, he's, like, praying and sobbing and, like, telling Bathsheba, like, no, I'll work this out. Like, I talked to God. I'm going <laughs> to make it so the kid lives. I'm so sorry. I'm so fucked up. And then, of course, like, the kid's born, stillborn. But then David is, is like, stops crying the moment that happens. He's like, well, that's done. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I tried. that's... That's why he's the guy, because it's like after all that, he's like, well, that was God. Like, that's what God wanted to do. What can you do? And it's like you don't really see her again. There's tons of shit there where people like run into the immovable object of David. Like, I think it's after a great military victory, Saul's daughter, David is like dancing around the streets and giving people raisins and like treats and like everyone's cheering for him. And Saul's daughter is like, oh, what a great sight for you know the people of Israel to see like their king dancing naked and like do it like making a spectacle of himself. <laughs> and then the next, the very next line is she died and she didn't have children. Like, <laughs> fuck her. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, it's so interesting, like what they're trying to tell. It's they're trying to tell you like contradictory things in some ways. Some people can interpret it. Yeah, that um, like Saul, who preceded David, was blessed and anointed in his own way early on, and then it, at like specific points during his reign as king, he immediately he would directly um, avoid or or you know not obey God, and mm -hmm. as as such, like as his reign goes on, God is actively sending like evil spirits down upon him, which is one of the strangest things that about the old Testament, especially in, in this time in the old Testament, it's like, why would God be cursing someone in that way? Like sending evil spirits on somebody. If God is not evil, then how would God then move evil and like make someone feel tormented in that way? It's, it's strange to me, but it was just a direct correlation to, well, you disobeyed me, dude. So here you go. Now you have depression. Yeah, that's I love the Old Testament for that reason, because it's so, you know, I love lore. I don't know about <laughs> you. I love lore. That's why I love Dark Souls. That's why I loved uh, Game of Thrones until they ran out of book to turn into show. <laughs> and uh, I love lore because it's like the point of lore and people miss this nowadays. So they don't miss it. They do the used to be you would watch or read something and you had lore and you'd figure it out. Now it's like there's no lore because they film everything. They make it like uh, John Wick movies. They're making a movie about the fucking guy who works at the hotel so you know everything about him. It's like what happened to, you know, you pick up clues along the way and you're like, oh, this goes here. This is the Old Testament's the last thing with lore, really, mm -hmm. because it's like there are these weird things where God is. He's not, you know, God isn't fully like 
first of all, it's practically monotheistic. That's one of the things people get messed up. They think there's only God. No, the Egyptians have gods. They're just shittier compared to like God. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're just, and, and like in Exodus, he also does weird shit where like the Pharaoh, after the plagues come for the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's like, okay, okay, like I'll let them go. And then God's like, I don't think so, pal, and makes it so he changes his mind. So he can show himself <laughs> to be more powerful. And it's like there was so much like weird shit like that. And it's like there are definitely missing pieces that are could probably explain this better. But we just like we either don't have them or we do have them. And we don't know exactly where they're supposed to go. And it's so we're just sort of left to like figure that out. Like why would. Yeah, exactly. Like why can God command evil this way? Why? Why is he like instead of like. I'll just kill you, which yeah. he's done before. Striking he's, someone down yeah. with yeah, with fire or lightning or whatever. Why yeah. why torment <laughs> someone with evil spirits? Yeah, I'm gonna make you depressed so everyone <laughs> sees how cool David is. Like it's so so much like weird shit in there. And yeah, no, that's what I love. I love it. I, I the, the only the only thing I feel like you really like get answers from in the entire like Tanakh is the Solomon parts. And even then it's not like a conclusive answer on like how you should live your life or how you should see things. It's just like, I mean, it's like, I, you know, I don't know what you have going on, but like chances are you've experienced like this sort of like ennui and then loss. And like, this is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to like, everyone thinks that like when they're depressed or they're experiencing like loss, like the end of a relationship, like feeling of forlornness that they have to change their inside until their outside can respond. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's supposed to be like, I can't wait till I don't feel sad anymore. And then I can like do all this shit again. Then I can enjoy everything. And I feel like the point of like Ecclesiastes and like some song of Solomon is like, no, you like the inside is just what it is and you you're broken you're gonna be yeah, broken yeah yeah you just have to live your life and maybe that will fix your inside maybe it won't but like that's what you have to do like my grandmother just turned 101 and wow. she's we allowed Jews last a really long time maybe there's something <laughs> oh, to no all kidding. this stuff yeah <laughs> and she's like she's an amazing person she comes from you know she's 101 she lived in a totally different world than anyone I've ever known. Yeah. You know, she grew up in an apartment in Chicago, like with a dirt floor, like nine family members there and has lived like this amazing life, like started a family, like traveled the world, like went to Vietnam, like alone, just because when she was like, you know, 75, like an amazing, amazing person who's led an amazing life. But she's also like experienced a lot of tragedy, you know, in like a short time span, she lost like, her husband, she lost a son. She, you know, like if you're a hundred, your friend, one of your friends dies every day and she has tons of friends. And I think my mom asked her once, like, how do you like, how are you able, like, you still like go swimming every day. You still like have all these friends. You still like, how do you not get like beaten down by any of this? And it's like, she was just like, you just, you got to keep going on. And it's like, <laughs> at first you kind of laugh at that because it's like, what? But then it's like, no, that's it. That really is it. You just have to keep going on. You have to like, you're, you can't just wait for your internal to heal. You have to, you have to kind of do something sometimes. 
that's a hundred percent the message of Ecclesiastes is mm-hmm. that like uh, there are going to be just there's going to be really bad stuff that happens to you in your life, and there's absolutely no way that you're going to be able to avoid that. And so your options are give up entirely and and rot away, or just try to do the best that you can, live the life that you that you're living. And yeah, you'll probably screw up. You'll probably be a David at some point in your life. You're not probably going to kill somebody because you knocked up their wife, but um, I hope not. But I mean, there's going to be cases where even if you feel at times like deeply connected with God and deeply like, uh, you know, in tune with the spirit, you will screw up. You will absolutely make stupid mistakes and um, keep playing the liar, I guess. You know, maybe, maybe yeah. you'll get a chance to fight a giant. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like they do, I think it's important like how they after David, they kind of build up Solomon where Solomon is like, he's all these things that David isn't. Yeah. Like David's not really an intellectual. Solomon is like the intellectual. He's yeah. the smartest guy in the world. And Solomon, like, as opposed to David, who's just like, whoever he sees, he like wants to fuck and he does. And, you know, someone either dies for that or doesn't. Uh, Solomon like has this system system of like wives and then just like women he fucks and like he has three hundred wives or something yeah and like five hundred concubines yeah (laughs) and he's like he's so sweet he writes you know this beautiful like lyrical prose about the Queen of Sheba and uh, they build him up so it can be like well he's still like he can still like be destroyed by something. He can still, his internal can still be like totally fucking wrecked because it's like, even chances are everyone's kind of a David, but you know, there are a few Solomons out there. And even if you're a Solomon, you're not free of that. You're not free of the human condition. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even Solomon did some things that weren't, weren't fully, I think advisable under, under the rules and like Leviticus. (laughs) No. Oh no. And he, Yeah, and he would, like, when he would, like, entertain a foreign queen, he'd be like, all right, I believe in, like, your God for today. Yeah. Like, your God's fine here. (laughs) And they're they're everywhere. Even in in, um, in, uh, 1 Samuel 17, they refer to, a lot of translations refer to the Philistines as pagans, but elsewhere in, um, in the Old Testament, the Philistines are not... They're not just like godless people. They have their own god. It's just a different god. It's it's one god too, and they pray to this god just like just like the Israelites were praying to Yahweh at the time. They they were praying to I've forgotten the name already, but it, it you know these these were societies that were coexisting. I don't know, and this is I guess what this may be a good way to actually start reading a little bit of the text because I want to get into a little bit of it at least for context for people. I don't know what it is about the story of the Judites, the Israelites, or whatever you want to call them at this time. Um, what about their story, their particular lineage um, that uh, stood uh, that stood the test of time other than the miraculous things that continued to happen to them over time? Um, but were there other miracles happening to other societies at the time and we just never learned about it? Uh, are there other texts that we don't know about? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's um, it's kind of baffling to me. I feel like it has to be right. Like there's, that's why I love reading, you know, the Tanakh is because 
Exactly. It's like, what lore am I missing here? And you, yeah. you sort of try to piece things together. When a, a, any other group is mentioned, you're like, hold on, hold on. Like, what's the deal with these guys here? Like, what's what's going on? And the sad thing is, I feel like a lot of it perhaps we'll never find. Yeah. But we do have other stuff that we just we don't really know the order it goes in. And the and the Old Testament, I mean, in 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 the Old Testament, God almost always is saying, "Go kill those people." The God is always being like, "Yes, your your mission is to to go get those people." And where that message changes is in the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where it stops being about we are a nation and we are um, you know we are fighting uh, wars to protect our nation and our tribe, and it starts becoming like we're all one you know, group of people in this world and we all need to find some way to coexist. And um, so it stops being about wars. It stops being about uh, tribes and it starts being about like more uh, central focus, more spiritual central focus uh, and peace and love and all those groovy things that that we all um, like to focus on today. But it's, you cannot leave behind how essential war was in this society. And And I don't know, how often was it that the, the, the Israelites heard God saying, go kill those people. And it was just them going, we're going to kill those people. Was it God saying that or not? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very interesting because yeah, like one of like the primary reasons why Saul was cursed with evil spirits and why we have David is because there were a few times where God was like, kill those people. And he didn't. He said no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. And I mean, yeah, a, a vulgar interpretation of it is like the point of Christ is that no, he has a covenant with everyone. You know, it's everyone, everyone in the world can form a covenant with him. No one is out of it. Um, but that's why I think a big, you know, a big part of the Christian ethos is like, hey, we're all sinners. What's interesting to me is that's not so much a Jewish ethos. You no. know, we're all sinners. We're all kind of fucked up, even though I feel like some of the most foundational parts of the Tanakh of David and Solomon, who I consider like two foundational figures, like Jewish theological reading, they – the point of them is that they're fucked up, but there isn't, I mean, of course there's like an acceptance that you will sin and you will fuck up in Judaism. Like there is like any Abrahamic religion, but it's not like worn on the sleeve in the way it is in Christianity. Is the confession of sin, the act of the confession of sin as important in Judaism as it is in Christianity? Cause I don't think it's as, as much of a central focus in Christianity. It's like, you better do this. This is part of the deal. And remember, Jesus said this, so we have to do it. But I don't know if, I guess some of the Psalms kind of deal with that, where it's like, oh, I've done these terrible things, or I've betrayed God in this way, or whatever. Well, that's like the point of uh, like Yom Kippur kind of is the day where you get to right your wrongs. The interesting thing about Yom Kippur is you can pray to God for most of your wrongs, but a broken promise, you have to go to the person you promised and broke oh. a promise to. Because the the thing is, like, God can't mend broken promises between people, which is another thing where it's like, wait, why can't he? <laughs> or does he just want you to, yeah. No, it is very interesting. Very interesting um, that it's like you, you get one day. 
And, you know, yeah, people do go to rabbis and they're like, I fucked up. I did this. I did that. And the rabbi will like, you know, kind of give them advice. And if they're a good rabbi, actually leave them with more questions. (laughs) But uh, it's not like, you know, with Catholicism, that's or really any Christianity. That's part of the whole deal. That's kind of the reason you're at. You have a church is confess your sins. Show their speak your testimonial, and it's Catholicism yeah. in particular. It's important because the priest is actually in 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 the rules of the Catholic Church. The priest actually has the power to to physically forgive and absolve of your sins. That I don't think in in Protestantism is is the case no. as much. But it is an important thing to like to cleanse yourself and unburden yourself. The problem with that the thing I always get tripped up on in this is that like in knowing that we're all broken in knowing that we all sin and we will continue to sin and we will continue to fail. Um, what about absolving yourself? How regularly do you need to absolve yourself? I guess is my question. <laughs> like, do I need to do this every week? Is there a rule to when I need to confess these sins? Should I do it every day? Uh, uh, it, it doesn't mean like, and it also doesn't mean that like we should be just be sinning freely, right? Because there are right. consequences as we see in here with Saul, there are consequences to sin uh, and with David too. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is, I mean, I don't, you know, what is the difference between the Tanakh and the New Testament? I think that for one, like, I don't think there's a lot of like moral prescription in the Tanakh. There's like, there's stuff for like how to deal with the realities of life, you know, what it like, what it means to like, be a person who is sort of conceiving of infinity and an infinity beyond oneself and even the memories of oneself. There's stuff like that, but there's not like, there's not a lot of like, this is how you be a good person. Because it's like, at the end of the day, you can, you know, you look at this in a modern context and you're like, well, what is the difference? Why are Saul's sins so much worse than David's? How come when David sins... God is like at a, at his worst. God is like, I'm gonna kill someone else. Like you get to keep <laughs> you don't you don't even have to stop being king, but you're I'm gonna kill someone else, and you're gonna be fine with it at the end of the day. And with Saul, it's like I'm not only gonna like this is the end of everything. You're going to <laughs> I'm gonna fucking curse you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna torment life, you. Yeah, I'm gonna make your and life like, a living hell. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> and you look at like what David sins. If you look at it in like a modern context, you're like, oh my, like this is the worst fucking guy ever. And like all Saul really did was like you don't really see it as that big of a deal, but you know, to piece it together, you're, it's sort of like, well, no, like for what God is mandating or however you choose to see it, whether, whether it's what God is mandating or, you know, what the context this was written in, the most important thing was to like wipe out all these other people to claim like victory for the Israelites. Yeah. Which is funny because at the end, like they piss off God so much. He's like, all right, fine. Fuck you. Like (laughs) you don't have this anymore. You're in captivity. (laughs) Fuck you. You suck. So this is a good place, I think, to just give a little context for the passage that we're focusing on today. We've already talked about it for a little while, but um, so first Samuel 17 is um, the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath is led up to by uh, the introduction of David as a character. And, um, 
and this war that's going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And for everyone that hasn't read it yet, it's kind of long. We don't have time to get through the whole passage in this episode, so please just go read it because um, it's it's brilliant. It's really cool. There's a lot of really in, intense detail, um, and I think you'll learn a lot from it just going through it. And I would f- recommend probably trying to find an easy-to-read version first and then go back to New King James or New Revised Standard or ESV or whatever because um, there's a lot of names you're not going to recognize and a lot of um, uh, metrics and measurements that you're not going to recognize. Um, things like uh, how Goliath was uh, nine feet tall-ish, but they they um, describe him as six cubits and a span. Uh, that his um, his spearhead was 15 pounds, but they describe it as, uh, what is the, what's the word? It's like uh, 500 shekels or something like that. Uh, yeah. Which is a measurement none of us know anything about now, right? Yeah, I thought that was very interesting because everyone thinks a shekel is like a, a monetary unit. Coin, but it's, yeah. like, <laughs> it, it's like, I mean, I guess that makes sense though, because it's like, well, the first like, until like fiat money, I guess, it's like <laughs> every like bit of money represents like a weight unit of gold. Yeah, it was even a chunk when of, we had in paper, bronze, I think, in this case. Yeah, even when we had paper money, it's like, okay, this represents like X, you know, point oh whatever ounces of gold. Uh, but I guess, yeah, if m- money was probably pretty new, like a fairly <laughs> new concept, like only a few thousand years old, and it's like, all right, well, like this is, I guess it would be like milliliters or something. Yeah, I mean that's how they're measuring it here, and yeah. I don't know the 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 origin of the measurement of a cubit, um, but yeah, that's about eighteen inches. So six cubits is about nine feet. I don't know what a span is exactly, but in the story, in the um, the context of the story, is the Philistines and the Israelites are warring tribes, and there is a sort of central plane that is technically, I think, belonging to uh, the Israelites, that um, they are on either side of this plane on the mountains, kind of just staring at each other, getting ready to fight, preparing for a fight. And Goliath, this big mountain of a man, steps forward and goes, if any one of you can take me down, then my whole crew will be your servants. uh, And that's how it's going to be. But you got to take me down first. And for 40 days, the Israelites are sitting there going, what? We can't do this. We can't beat this guy. What are we talking about? And little David, little David, who's sent from his, his, his sheep farm. Uh, he comes with his bread, uh, and his grain to, to feed his brothers who are the big warriors. And he's just this little ruddy faced, uh, kid. He shows up and he looks around and he goes, are you guys kidding me? No one is going to fight this guy. Like he disrespected our God. Like that's our dude. How are you going to let him just stand there and disrespect us? So David, all puffed up, goes down there and takes uh, takes Goliath down, which uh, in the story obviously takes a lot longer than how I just described it. But the um, the things that trip me up in this passage, and I don't know if I should get into the specifics of it quite yet, but David David meets Saul in sixteen. Um, between 14 and uh, verses 14 and 23, David meets Saul. He's already in Saul's service. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. 
And when the harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. But at the end of 17, Saul asks who David is. What the hell? Did did you notice that? Like, How does he not know who he is already if he's already working for him? I feel like with that, the point is that like David's completely forgettable. (laughs) If you don't like, if you don't, even though there is this whole like whole thing of like, we're anointing him like, no, this one's special. And that's, I mean, I think it's more of a point about Saul too, that it's like, no, like God through an intermediary is telling him like this guy's special. And Saul's like, yeah, 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 I got it. And then (laughs) it comes up again and it's like, wait, who, who? Were you the guy that played the guitar when I was feeling sad? Is that you? Yeah. (laughs) And then David, yeah, David is like, let me do it. Saul's like, okay, fine, here's armor. And he's like, no, I don't want armor. It's like how in Bloodborne you don't have armor because, like, they're like, German invented it so you can move faster to (laughs) kill beasts. It's the same idea. But, like, David's like, no, I don't need armor. I'm not, like... This is fine, by the way, because you're like, yeah, I've killed bears and stuff when I've been a shepherd. And I always read Saul's lines here as like, yeah, whatever, go crazy. Yeah. Like here, you'll probably die and we'll just like continue staring at each other on a hill forever. The, uh, yeah, the, and, and the notion that this, this could have just been a standoff, uh, in perpetuity cracks me up, but this line I is. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> the line is very good that, um. Uh, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Like, dude, I fought a bear, okay? Yeah. (laughs) I fought an actual bear. That is such a rich text, (laughs) that one. I love that because it's like, A, it's like you have to fight the biggest guy like anyone's ever seen. And he's like, this is fine. Like, I killed a bear. Like, I don't give a shit. A lion. I mean, come on now. Took a lion by its beard. But then also it's like you do see, like, it's not really subtext because they do kind of explicitly say this a lot, that anyone who isn't an Israelite, like anyone who's an enemy tribe, like, is an animal. That they're not. That's how they treat them because they're uncircumcised. This is like a. Um, this is like the first, one of the first things that they mention about, about Goliath is that like, he's uncircumcised. Like they're looking up, he's 10 feet tall. So they're looking up his like tunic yeah, and they're seeing his like animal penis or something. It's like, what a bizarre thing to mention <laughs> right away. 
But yeah, it is it, that is very interesting how like you know we were talking about what's the difference between both testaments and it's I mean it's that it's like Tanakh like basically everyone in the world is kind of an animal except you guys and there are like there are exceptions whether it's like foreign queens for you know David and uh, Solomon etc but at the end of the day like you're the only real humans and that's where there is this religious figure in Israel, the Rabbi Ovadia, who is like sort of the chief rabbi for all Sephardis. And he would say this insane shit. Like he would say like just absolutely insane shit where he's like anyone who isn't a Sephardic Jew isn't fully human <laughs> and like exists to be our servants. And his funeral was like one of the biggest public events ever in Israel. And it's like. It's absurd and fucking crazy and, like, beyond racist. But it's also, like, well, that's, like, if you just, like, took this uncritically and were, like, yeah, we're rolling with this, that is kind of what you would think. Yeah. And it's, like, that is not obviously, like, that's a small group of fundamentalists for the broader Jewish diaspora who, like, do think that. But it is, like, it is notable. But then, like, with Christianity, there it's – you know, bravely takes a stance that everyone is fully human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a remarkable thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is like, this is part of a like a, a, a spiritual kind of understanding of God that I've been trying to formulate in my own head for a long time, is that God actually learns from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God is actively experiencing everything that the Israelites are going through. He's the one that that can actually seem to get things done in the world and is, and is like raising this, this tribe to prominence and, and uh, inspiring all of this, this beautiful writing and, and inspiring all of these people. Uh, And then God goes, wow, like maybe I shouldn't just be doing this for this particular group of people. Like maybe I can, I can make everybody involved with this. Like maybe I can make this awesome for, everybody and not just this group of people. And so God goes, all right, well, I'm going to send Jesus down. Jesus got to do a lot of stuff that's going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it's going to be uncomfortable for him too. But uh, ultimately what that means is that everyone can be welcomed. I wonder though, because in the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as like part of the lineage of David. Uh, they, They specifically mentioned that he came from David's bloodline. How does that, how does that fit? Like, with how David acts, um, what is it about him other than he's referred to as like uh, having been um, from the same heart of God, like uh, one of God's own? Uh, how else does David fit with Jesus? I don't really see the connection there. I That has always been very interesting. And one way, you know, you can interpret it is, you know, it's a, it was a way to, like, get Jews on board because, like, when Christianity started, it's like well, – That's what they were trying to do, really. Yeah, who's yeah. who's you, who's you the first group of people you're going to get on board? Well, Jews, yeah. Because it's, like, it's – right when it started, it's sort of hard to, like – if you don't if you don't know all the lore to, like, go to a Roman or, yeah. or like, whatever, like, pagan set, like, a Ostrogoth or whatever and be like, yeah, this is – check it out. This God loves everyone. Yeah. So you'd have to get someone who's into the lore. Uh, But I do, I don't know, maybe it's like, most literally it is like, well, you know, we've been waiting for a Messiah in Judaism. This is it. Like he's of David's bloodline. 
the, the Messiah, like he would be connected to this pre-existing thing, this project that's been going on forever. Uh, and, you know, I mean, David is, I mean, yeah, I, I with David, like the most notable thing is like his obedience yeah. to God. And he's, he's, his prowess in, in war is what he's most glorified for. And it's what ultimately I think gives him the glory that he has and, and gets him to where he goes, you know, as King, even though Saul tries to chase him down and kill him for so long. Um, but like, it really is just like his, his prowess and war that comes from this promise that he made this, like this devotion that he has to God. And, and I mean, the Psalms are beautiful. Like yeah. David's Psalms are just incredible. I don't know how many of them he actually wrote and how many are just attributed to him or whatever, but um, you could just flip to a Psalm and be like, that's gosh, that's cool, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> no. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, I think the thing that amazes me the most about the doc is that like, you know, the first time I really like actually took a look at it, it was like, you know, when you read like Rousseau or something that isn't, you know, something that isn't even from that long ago, like the only writer who's like kind of interesting from like not even antiquity, but like, you know, 500, 600, 700 years ago is Chaucer because Chaucer is like kind of funny in this timeless way. But even then, it's sort of like how the fuck, like, I don't understand this world at all. <laughs> and then, like, you get into the classics and you're like, this shit fucking sucks. Like, I hate <laughs> reading this. Like, I, I had to take philosophy in college, like a lot of people, and I, like, hated it. I hated everything I read. Yeah. I hated the classics because it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess I can see why this was important at the time. But it's like, this is like like this is just so alien to anything I understand. And like the, the prose is so different from any way that I've been taught to understand writing or even speech or anything. And obviously, so, you know, and I had to take theology and, you know, get to the Tanakh. It's like, Oh God, this is going to suck. But you read it and you're like, no, I like get this. It's actually beautiful. I, yeah. It's beautiful. But I also, I understand people's priorities. I understand, like, what type of people they're supposed to be. And I think it's because so much, like, philosophy from antiquity into, like, you know, uh, the Enlightenment is it sucks because there's too much in it. Like, all that shit is very wordy and annoying. <laughs> the Like, anything with the Bible is cool because it's, like, because of what's not there. It's and like you're, it's what you have to fill in. Yeah, you're yeah. supposed to pick up so much through like context clues, but it it because of that it like sings to you in this way. That's like kind of amazing. Without a without a single doubt, having been just like kind of recreationally reading the Bible now uh intensely at least for the last like year, year and a half and uh and focusing on this, I've gleaned more about life, about um relationships, about love, about work about everything uh in in an, in like a, a wide like things that i take from it and go this is how i can live my life and actually improve my life anything i learned than, than anything that i learned from socrates or plato or any any of the classics as it were uh i didn't soak in very much of that when i was actually trying to study it and i had to write papers about it and then i actually had to focus on it uh i get more from this than i ever did from from those texts so, like, what does that tell you about the power of the actual language that they're using here? Like, the way it's written, 
is compelling. There's a reason why the Bible has has stood the test of time. And, and it's because partially because it was like a calculated effort to to construct a book that would that would stick around for a long time, right? The Bible as we know it was only really put together in like I want to say 400, 397 or something like that. So like it was it was a calculated effort, which makes you wonder like why these chronological errors of Saul meeting David and then not knowing who David is or um, David killing Goliath twice uh, like he does in 17 happen. Like, couldn't we have edited that a little bit more? But ultimately, like, it is a very carefully constructed and compelling text that while you may not agree with the theology of it or you may not believe in the God that it talks about, there's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's just good ways to live in here. I, obviously, there's some rules that don't make any sense in, in the modern context. And and there's a lot of things that happen that are just abhorrent and and, and terrible. But um, there's there's some really beautiful stuff in here. Yeah, no, it, it's that was my exact same experience. Like I suffered through philosophy, like having to take it through school and being just thinking like how like why does anyone read this? Like this, this sucks. <laughs> like I hate this. Like I hate Rousseau. I hate uh Thomas Aquinas. I hate all this shit. <laughs> shit sucks. And then yeah, no, like I was like the I was blown away by the power mm. in the Bible. It's incredible. It's incredible. And not just, you know, the parts that I have, like I'm obviously was like predisposed to have like some cultural connection and like affinity with the Tanakh parts. But even like after that, like Christianity still like the New Testament still like amazing, amazing. Revelation is beautiful. It's like one of those beautiful books ever written. There's got to be a reason why every um, like Every person that has some like manifesto that they write or some um, th- some uh, groundbreaking uh, thing that they're like introducing into the world or, or some uh, insane uh, atrocity that they're committing all seem to be referring to Revelation. <laughs> this yeah. is this is a text that no one has ever really been able to properly make sense of. So it all it, it stands to reason that the people who are committing uh, insane like uh, apocalyptic. Uh, apocalyptic atrocities and the people that are trying to like save the world and, and spread love are all quoting from the same book that has such dense language, such um, inscrutable metaphor that, uh, that if uh, you can, you can study numerology, you can study history, you can study anything that they refer to in this, and it's still not really going to become clear to you. Uh, You'd kind of just have to, to go with it. And there is something amazing there with, with, with what you just mentioned, where even people who aren't like fully in line with scripture or like any established religion, everyone is like kind of cribbing from this one way or the other. And like, I don't know how much you're I'm like, I'm very into like, uh, like black nationalist, like, uh, ne- like religions, like neo religions that started, you know, a hundred years ago, max hmm. like nation of Islam and Moorish science temple. And what's so into like, I think they're fascinating and they're fascinating because it's like for America, at least this is like, like if you're black and you're conservative, this is like sort of the lane for you because it's like, you're obviously like not into like what the rest of the conservative movement is and you're obviously you do have some disconnect where it's like, well, like what the like, 
why would I like want to be like an American Christian after all this? Like what that doesn't really make sense, mm-hmm. but I am still like a conservative person. And I've, you know, I grew up very close to where Farrakhan's house is in Chicago. And I've known a lot of the Midwest is like ground zero for a lot of both these groups and people who believe in them. And the most interesting thing is like, there, it's always like fear mongered about, especially in like Jewish identity magazines, like the, these groups. And it's like, yeah, a lot of like what, you know, Farrakhan and other guys have said is anti-Semitic. But the most interesting thing is like when you actually meet someone who like adheres to these or is like kind of into it, like they're no- always like normal guys who like have <laughs> families and are like nice. And it's like they just happen to believe this. Because, like, maybe they're, like, kind of conservative person, but they're, like, I don't want to be, like, a fucking Baptist. Like, why would I want to be that? And what's interesting to me about all these all, all these things is, like, they are all connected to Abrahamic religion. I mean, like, literally the nation of Islam yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah, But they are – they do go off, like, in their own, like, crazy directions. And the directions they go in is sort of, like, black-centered racial science where, like, blacks are called, like, the first men. They're mm-hmm. called like it, it, that, like, you know, with Nation of Islam, literally that like an evil scientist created white people out of germs off of black people. And that like what? <laughs> there's a lot of like awesome shit like that. And and it's like it's crazy, but it's also like, well, I go back and it's like, well, what about Ovadia? What about like all these guys in every religion who do kind of also think that like why can't black people also have this too? If like everyone else has this, sure. but like it, it's it, so there's so much numerology and like Moorish science temple, which is so interesting to me because like these were definitely like created where it's like, we need like our own thing. Like we need our own version of Judaism kind of is yeah. what a lot of it is, but also like we're like, we're directly cribbing revelation. We're directly creeping like numerology in some cases like directly just doing like speaking hebrew and being like no we're the real israelites like and it's so like all these disparate groups all over the world too are like obsessed with these concepts and there is it's like i don't yeah i'm not a christian but it does make me think it's like well there's not nothing here you know if the and if that something is only that like this this is so resonant with us because we're obsessed with the end of the world or something well yeah but like there are apocalyptic texts in everything yeah i mean every, every religion has yeah. something uh that even the the early prophets were talking like this yeah uh, it's, it's just that revelation seems to have struck a particular chord because of how complicated it is and how specific absolutely. it is about certain things um yeah i mean it, it that's really that's really interesting. I mean, to tie it back into what we're talking about, um, the the notion of uh, David being in some way connected to Jesus, I think, uh, allows for the continuity not just for the the Jewish people to like be like persuaded into uh, Christianity, but to like recognize that if a Messiah were to come down and to be here and to be human that that Messiah would have to also be flawed like humans are flawed, which you never hear in Christianity. You never hear anyone in Christianity say that that Jesus was a human being and therefore was flawed because Jesus was in their, in, you know, in the mind of Christians, Jesus was 
100% human and 100% God and therefore lived a perfect life. But if you can, how can you be 100% human and not, uh, and, and not be flawed? I feel like that's like, it's a prerequisite to being human, to be like broken like this. Um, and so maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a connection there. And and Jesus doesn't really show any signs of, of David-ishness in, in his existence in no. the New Testament. Yeah. But, but, um, but he certainly does uh, in the same way that David kind of welcomes in other um, cultures, welcomes in other societies, that Jesus does the same thing and says, all right, like, look, don't worry about what their penis looks like. You can you can have dinner with them. It's okay. Like if that's not going to curse you in any way. Yeah, yeah, and it is like, I, I mean, I wish people would like try to do like a deep reading of the Tanakh and then like look at Christianity because like that message is like it's unbelievable for the time in the world it came out. Like it's unbelievable that there would be a thing where it's like, no, everyone can do this. Mm -hmm. It was the first idea of like a global system, like ever, I would say. There was nothing like that before. Why would there be? It wasn't exactly easy for people to like leave their places of birth or travel across oceans. And it's like for all most people knew, like if you cross continents, it's like, yeah, there could be like monsters over there. How would you even you wouldn't know yet if there were other humans. Mm -hmm. And it is the first idea kind of that, like, no, we're all the same thing, kind of. Yeah. And like we can all have the same morality and love. Yeah, previous religions had tied themselves to, like, this is our God. This is this is our God of the sun. This is our God of the moon. This is our God of the of the plants and, and the sea. Uh, and all these things. And this is like, it's like regional. And this is going from a regional, like regional faith to national faith, then to worldwide faith. And that, that whole, like that trajectory is fascinating to me, especially since when we get to the end of it and, and like supposedly the door is open. Now everyone starts taking these texts from, from the book that goes, everyone's invited and starts going, no, 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 no. we're over here and you're over here. Uh, it, like, like the black nationalist stuff you were talking about, like that, that separates people. And there are plenty of racist uh, white denominations of Christianity that do the same thing. It's like, well, no, because Jesus then went, well, I'm not, I don't want to bring up the Mormons or anything like that, but then Jesus went to America and, and talked to Joseph Smith and they started yeah. a whole new tribe over there. And, and it's, it's, I mean, that's wild to me. It's like, you're fundamentally missing the point of what this text is saying if you're trying to, to, to exclude people. And it is like at the, and it's like, now it's like, with the black nationalists, it's like, well, at least you like, you were like, no, this is like a new thing that isn't quite an Abrahamic religion. Like this isn't <laughs> Christianity because it's like, we definitely like don't believe in that. And it's like, it's like, those black nationalists, like weird religions are like, it's definitely like a response to like history, you know? It's I mean, understandably so, yeah, that you would absolutely. want to create your own, yeah, your own yeah. path. Yeah, yeah. And, like, if you look at, like, what NOI and other things, like, are practically, like, yeah, there are other groups that are, like, cults, obviously, and that's going to happen with anything. But, like, what the biggest things are, like, NOI really are, it's, like, first of all, it's one of the only, like, black groups where, like, 
Farrakhan's one of the only like Farrakhan's like an awful guy, and I could get into <laughs> that extensively, but like I probably shouldn't. <laughs> right? Why does why do like why does he have adherence? Well, it's like one of the only like black leaders left who will say certain things that like are true and mm-hmm. are like you know like like very powerfully true and like not that popular to hear. And, you know, to be fair, like Reverend Wright also said that thing. But, yeah, not everyone wants to be a Christian. And um, it's also like it is like, you know, in the same way that like other groups like have ways of like having like a community structure that like uplifts people. And it's like you just like the Masons, just like some churches, just like some temples. It's like, yeah, no, that's what it is for a lot of black people. It is like an organization where there is. A, a pre an institution where it's used to vouch for people. Mm-hmm. And it's like everyone in America does kind of like need that in a way. And, but yeah, no, you do, after you look at like what Mormons have done and what like some insane sex of other stuff do, you do it and you look at like what the original message of Christianity is. It's like, you look at the black nationalist groups and you're like, well, at least you didn't say this is Christianity. <laughs> Because like Mormonism, yeah, at least you splintered. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm obsessed with Mormonism because like they they've tried to change it and they've tried to like you know until what like 1979 it was like no black person could be Mormon. It was. I mean, it was that recent, which is I mean, like okay, so as somebody who is a Christian and as somebody who recognizes that Christianity itself was built off of a text that had been established and a faith that had been established. And it in and of itself was a sort of a mutation of a religion that was already there, that was already happening, that was uh, that people were perfectly satisfied to be a part of. And, and then all of a sudden we're changing the message and, and we're rewriting the book. And, and of course, you know, in the book itself, it says Jesus like wasn't trying to change anything and, and was just trying to fulfill things and so on and so forth. But it, so it, as a Christian, it's hard for me to go, that's bonkers uh, no way. Uh, how can you possibly add to the story of Jesus? Um, but it just feels disingenuous because the way that it all came together felt like it was a, like, it all feels like a power grab. It all feels like you're trying to set up a new society where, uh, you know, it's like a theocracy or something where you're, you're just, you're creating a a world where, yeah, we've, we've re we've remade the power structure of Christianity to be like the way that we want it to, and that benefits our people. And if, I don't know, it's always felt kind of odd to me. It is. Yeah, it is very odd, but it is like the way I interpret Mormonism is like, it's like American, like white people, like inventing Judaism. Kind of. <laughs> and it's also like, because if you look at like the way that Mormons act with each other and everything and the way that they use temples and the way that they like the way they've conducted themselves since the migration to Utah it is like very reminiscent of like Jewish American culture in that way of like helping each other and like having their own sort of like self-contained world. Also, I mean, Mormonism is also interesting because it is like, it's trying to reconcile Christianity with America. Yeah. And like theologically, like I don't, like, I I don't, like, there's a lot with Mormonism that I think is, like, weird and fucked up. But I think if, like, any religion, like, ever gets to space colonies, it will be them. Because it's, like, <laughs> there there is something, like, very fucking weird about it and weird about, like, the theological concept of, like, 
no, you will be God. Like after, if you're like a good enough Mormon, you will be God after you die. Like Mitt Romney is going to be a God after he dies. And that whole concept of like celestial kingdom versus, you know, but it, it, it is, I mean, like, it's very interesting what they've been able to do, you know? Yeah. And I it's, mean, it's definitely like, it's a little bit Christianity. Like there is, they do now have that ethos of like, we have to go everywhere. Part of becoming a Mormon really is that you have to travel around the world for two years and like try to make more Mormons, try yeah. to make more people Mormon. But like, it's also like, it is so uniquely American. It is. And, and like Christianity has that aspect of evangelism. Like there's a call in, in, um, acts to go and, and, you know, go out there. Here's your mission. Go out. Let's go, you know, let's go spread the message. That's awesome. And that's been kind of lost in modern Christianity because people don't want to force things upon other societies, but it's like, there's still sects of Christianity that, that still just go to like countries that are underdeveloped and, and go, yeah, we'll help you, but then you have to read this book. Yeah, and the, the Mormons yeah. do the same thing. They do the exact same thing. So, it's, and I think Mormonism is actually a faster growing religion than I think any other one in the world oh, no. right now. Yeah, it's the fastest fastest growing one, and it is. It's sort of perfect for our modern world because, like, with Christianity, you can only have that ethos if you like really do think everyone is equal. With Mormonism. They're like, yeah, 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 everyone's equal, but some people are better, still better. <laughs> and we're that's why gods. we have like three tiers of heaven. <laughs> that's why, like, yeah, everyone can hear the word of God, but God came to America the last. Like, that's <laughs> was the last place he came. That's the mo- we're the most important. And of the people in America, we're the best. We get the highest tier of heaven. And it is, it's perfect for Americans because it's like, yeah, you do. You speak to these broad gestures to like universal equality and like everyone can be saved, but it's like at the same time you're like, yeah, but we're more saved. Yeah, like we're better. I feel <laughs> like, like it's even awesome. so. Even if you believe that like God just pops down like in a little spaceship and like says his peace and then leaves again, and that's like how you believe that God acts in the world. Like, isn't it kind of a cell phone to be like God came down? to America and then literally hasn't been back in a, in 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, there's so I'm done. much, <laughs> so much weird shit about it. that leaves so many unanswered questions. And of course, like there is a lot of like for, uh, factionalization within Mormons as they became more modern. Sure, yeah. There were like groups of people who like did go to other areas of Utah and even went to Mexico, went to a lot of places, went to Brazil and were like, no, we're still going to live the principle of like plural marriage and like not touch the modern world. And it is, it actually, that reminds me so much of Hasid's because it is like, no, we're, we're following an ancient tradition, but the way that they dress and act and look is tra- is not ancient. It's from like the mid to late 1800s. <laughs> it's so, it's, it's so We're weird. We're not going back that far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> it's like an ancient tradition that started, you know, 140 years ago. <laughs> what? But, uh, you know, for the most part though, they've like pretty easily modernized and like become a part of like mainstream American life. There are a lot of Mormon celebrities. There are a lot of, I mean, Mitt Romney is like, I hate to say it, one of the most respected Americans. 
And I mean, his, if the you, way if that you poll the general public, yes, that's probably yeah. true. I mean, I, that's baffling to me, but yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing because like the way he's conducted himself in business, like what he did before all this, being a private equity guy, that kind of fits with Mormonism. <laughs> it's like, I'm above you. I'm going to buy your company and fucking fire you. Collapse. I'm rich that way. <laughs> Sorry, fuck you. I'm more equal than you. Like, it's, I, I mean, I could see, you know, there are many possible futures for America. I see a future where we're just a Mormon country. I think <laughs> oh, if you God look at like, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I could see it because it's like, Look at all the celebrities who, like, towards the end of their lives after being destroyed by decadence and, like, yes men and everything, like, sort of drifted towards Mormonism, like Howard Hughes and and Elvis, as you said, was at least, like, surrounded by Mormons. And we're kind of, like, as a nation, we're fat Elvis now. <laughs> and, like, we're, we're – We like, are <laughs> – Everything like influencer culture and like our (laughs) massive reliance on like opiates and benzodiazepines and everything. It it is we're searching for something, but we're not quite ready to be like, no, everyone's equal. We still need to be more equal than other people. (laughs) And I, I could see. Yeah, I could see a future where we are like the Mormon theocracy kind of the the problem that I have with religions that are so insular like that is it always kind of feels like um what is that what's the phrase for that um like people that sell essential oils and like um like uh mainline, mlm yeah mlm mainline mainline marketing or something like that uh multi-level Mul- marketing. multi-level marketing yeah it feels like that where it's like scientology in a way where you're you're like buying your way to the top this is inherently i think what what Luther feared when he, uh, when he, you know, when he took his stand against the the church as it, as it was at the time, he was saying like, you can't buy indulgences. You can't, you can't just buy your way into like being closer to God. Uh, you can't create a system wherein the people that have more already are going to be in a position that will allow them to be closer to God. That is, um, that is completely antithetical to what we read today, that David was a humble shepherd. Mm-hmm. He, was a, he was a little, ruddy, little, uh, he was a cute little guy who no one would ever suspect could, could take down a giant. And yet uh, God gave him the power to do that. God isn't interested in finding the people that are already powerful, that are already rich, and going, yeah, here's some more power. Yeah, let's make you the, the head chief wizard or whatever the hell it is. Um, God is finding the people that are the smallest and saying, here's, you know, here's the ability to either get through today or to get through this struggle or to get through this battle or whatever. I mean, I think that that, how can you not read the Bible and see that message that God isn't looking for the powerful people? God isn't looking out for them. Once they're powerful already, they tend to screw up. They tend to murder people. They tend to be adulterers. They tend to to commit atrocities or disobey God or whatever. That God is always just looking for the next little guy to elevate. Yeah, yeah, it is very interesting. And, you know, you don't even, like, yeah, you don't even have to go to Mitt Romney. Like, (laughs) Mormons filled out a lot of the personnel of the proto-deep state, you know, they filled out a lot of the FBI, a lot of the CIA as it was starting off because 
Well, I mean, like back Wasn't, then, uh, it's like, that Evan Mc, Mc, Evan Mall, Evan McMullen yeah, guy, he was a Mormon. Mormon too. Yeah, yeah, and it's like that is yeah. No, they the way that they've built themselves up. I mean, in some ways, it is like the only like fully honest, like large Christian sect in America because everyone kind of does that. Everyone is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's equal. But like, how do I like, how do I get one over on everyone else? (laughs) And like, they are like, it is pretty sacrilegious. Like their doctrine, (laughs) it's like, no, we're still better. But it is, it is like, well, at least you like solve that problem. You know, because no one else is trying to solve that problem. No one else is like, like you should like, you can be Catholic or you can be Presbyterian or whatever. And like, you know, have these goals, you know, you want to get elected somewhere, you want to do good, but it shouldn't be like, it's, you're completely like missing the point of shit. If it's like, no, I like need to be elected, like, because I'm a Presbyterian, like we need to. Presbyterian congressman, uh, only I can do all these things. Uh, you're, you're, you're like kind of missing the point of it. Like, as you said, like David wasn't selected because he was already great, but, um, Mormons at least are solving that problem. I, I do think it's <laughs> very interesting. Do you remember this when like Trump was in 2016, early 2016, he was starting to get those endorsements from evangelicals and people were like, how could you endorse this man? And they were like, you dummy, he's David. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't recall that, but that's crazy. Yeah, People that were drawing awesome. connections between Trump and David. It's an awesome comparison for so many reasons because David was. It's not like David was like he wasn't rich. <laughs> he wasn't like it wasn't like he anyone knew who he was even. No, and like, but also like, I mean, their point was that like, hey, David was like kind of a bad guy, but like, look, and. <laughs> It's like other people compared him to uh, Cyrus, where it's like Cyrus is sort of a hero of Israel because mm. he freed them from Babylonian captivity, oh, yeah, even yeah. though. And that's like I think that works more of as a as a comparison. But like the comparison with David is so interesting because like you know I think all this stuff, all the talk that like left liberal people do about like. Trump's like a unique he's Hitler. He's he will stop at nothing. And it's like Donald Trump will stop at anything. Yeah, he's not he's not unique <laughs> in his terribleness. He is one of many terrible people exactly in his position. And yeah, Dave, David also, was yeah. an artist. David was like a, a he like he was this flowery I can't see that connection at all. No, That's insane. And David would stop at nothing to, to do things. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump is like I out of any American figure, I've seen him like give up the most time. <laughs> it's like, no, that's a guy who will stop at literally anything to stop doing anything. <laughs> not a particularly like really brave guy. No, <laughs> not, I like think- he's afraid to fire people face to face. And it's like that. It's like, yeah, their personalities couldn't be more like David say what you want about like some things he did. He was undeniably like an incredibly brave person. Yeah, because he turned down the armor, right? He knew he had the trust in God to say like, okay, well, I've been anointed. So like either I'm going to I'm going to accomplish this task and I will uh, do great with it and glorify God or I'm going to die. And that's God's will, too. So like, fine. But yeah, you look at a, a character like Trump who 
you know, for all the things that everyone was afraid would happen when he was in, in office, he didn't accomplish 90% of the things that he said no. he was going to accomplish. I mean, he, he backed down on a lot of things because he was a, because he was a coward because he's weak yeah. and physically weak and mentally weak. The guy just, he didn't have the, he didn't, um, yeah, he didn't have the gumption to stick it through. And, and even in the cases where people, like people in his administration were like kneecapping him and being yeah. like, no, you're not going to do that, dude. It's like, you got to surround yourself with a more supportive crew, my dude, if you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> yeah. But it is, I mean, I guess like, Americans are always like we're looking for a connection between ourselves and both the heroes of the Old Testament and trying to like both accept the lessons of the New Testament while also still believing we're special. And everyone's trying to everyone's trying to do that. Yeah, everyone's trying to do that. Mormons are the only people who have like institutionalized the solutions to those problems. Yeah, I mean, and that's that sucks because the, in honesty, it's like the the lesson should always be like blessed are the meek, yeah, uh, blessed are the humble. Don't don't try to put yourself into the position of somebody that God has already glorified because you don't know if that's going to be your purpose. You don't know if that's going to no. be your life. Just be kind and be loving and 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 follow what, at least to the best of your ability, follow what you're supposed to do, and then maybe you'll be called to do something, uh, and, and maybe you will be uh, put into a position where you can make a difference or you can you can accomplish something great in your life but otherwise just be good just be just be yeah. good you're going to have you're going to have dragons that you're going to have to slay you're going to have goliaths that you're going to have to take down and and pray that you might have the strength to to have a slingshot that hits the giant between the eyes but i mean in reality you may just have to you may just have to face it on your own yeah sometimes yeah sometimes you got to take your lumps <laughs> Well, this seems like a good place to to stop. Are you um are you do you think that we covered enough of of the story of David and Goliath? Oh, yeah. No. I had, a, I had a great time. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming pleasure. on the show. This is like really really cool. Uh do you want to plug anything? You want to have like the the whole deal or I can I can put um, your links in the in the I actually don't have anything to plug right now. We're like we're, we're done with like the sideshow uh, on Stitcher that me and Matt did last year. People should check out Matt's President series. And for people who aren't already listening to it, uh, you know, check out Blowback Season Two on Cuba. And also, uh, I don't know when this is going to go out. There are still unsold tickets to the Seeking Derangement early show that me and Will are doing. Also, Pot About List. Uh, that that shows the twenty second. If this goes up before then, this uh, is going to go cool. out next week at some point. So uh, I'll try to get it out as soon as I can. But no rush, no rush. Uh, but yeah, no, I can I can send you those links. Cool. Yeah, please do, and I'll I'll put them in the the show notes and and um and yeah, thanks again, dude. Uh, this My was pleasure. a very cool experience. I, I really appreciate it, and and uh, and I think it was a cool conversation. So my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, you you take care. You too. The poem this week is by Mary Oliver. It's called Some Questions You Might Ask. Is the soul solid like iron, or is it tender and breakable like the wings of a moth in the beak of an owl? Who has it and who doesn't? I keep looking around me. The face of the moose is as sad as the face of Jesus. The swan opens her white wings slowly. In the fall, the black bear carries leaves into the darkness. 
One question leads to another. Does it have a shape, like an iceberg, like the eye of a hummingbird? Does it have one lung, like the snake and the scallop? Why should I have it and not the anteater who loves her children? Why should I have it and not the camel? Come to think of it, what about the maple trees? What about the blue iris? What about all the little stones sitting alone in the moonlight? What about roses and lemons and their shining leaves? What about the grass? Thanks, everybody. I'm